Welcome in, everyone, to this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Birmingham, Alabama. Of course, we've got Kyle Crooks from Gainesville, Florida, and we are joined today from Indianapolis, Indiana, by the voice of the Indiana Pacers on the radio, Mark Boyle. And Mark, it's great to see you. How's your summer going so far? So far, so good. Thanks for having me. And Mark, we usually start out these episodes, at least I do, asking the same question to everybody. And that's just how this year went for everybody, you know, considering the remote setups around the NBA, around professional sports, around collegiate sports, calling road games can certainly be a task for you. What was the adjustment process like having to to do road games a little bit differently this year? Well, before I get into specifics, uh, I want to make a general observation because when I start to talk about the difficulties involved with that it sounds like I'm complaining and there's never a day where I forget that this is not a real job so if I say well it was really difficult to sit in a studio and call a game off of a monitor that might be true but it's not nearly as difficult as being without work or reporting to do some kind of a job that you hate So that's my perspective before I answer. Uh, Working off a monitor in our case was not as difficult as it was for some uh, because we don't have access to our players and coaches and other media types like we would back in the day. We initiated uh, conference calls on game days. Our broadcasters would get with the broadcasters from the other team uh, and we would exchange notes and comments and observations. And just talking to those guys, I could sense that they had a lot more trouble than we did. We have a terrific behind the scenes staff here. We never had a single technical issue. Uh, And so while it was difficult calling a game off of a monitor, it wasn't nearly as problematic as it was for some. The one thing that was a problem, and this was unavoidable just because of circumstances, uh, if you don't have contact with your team, it makes it a little bit more challenging to tell their story. Uh, I never did meet our coach. He lasted for a year and then he was fired and we didn't have access the whole time. Now, I spoke to him on the phone for five or six minutes once a week for our weekly radio show, but I never did meet him in person. Haven't spoken to any of our players in over a year. So it's the day-to-day interaction with players, coaches, management, trainers, and so forth that helps you get a complete understanding of what's going on. A lot of the stuff you find out during these interactions, you can never use but it's contextual and it helps you understand the story. And when you work for a team and you're out there 82 nights a year, or in this case, 72, because of the truncated schedule, you're telling a story. You're not just calling a game and you need to put everything in context. And sometimes that's hard when you don't have access to the people that you would normally have access to. Uh, In total, I would say this, it was more difficult than it would have been back in the day, as I like to call it now. But still, because of the support staff that we have here, I think it was as seamless as it could possibly be. Uh, And it just illustrates how much, not just for us, but for all teams, for all guys that are fortunate enough to have jobs like this, the behind the scenes types are never known, are never mentioned unless they screw up. Uh, Our people are so good that we never even have to mention them ever if that were the case. They don't screw up and they made our job so much easier than it might have been. So yeah, it was difficult, but let's, uh, let's stay grounded here. We still had work. We still had games. We still did what we love to do when we were very fortunate. 
And you mentioned, you know, it was, it was tougher to, to get stories and you talked about how you would talk to other broadcasters to get those stories and not being able to, to talk to players. Would you talk to, you know, beat writers? Would you try to get them on the phone and ask them just about the daily interaction? How, you know, how are you able to get into the day-to-day to the Pacers without having that face-to-face communication? You, know, you mentioned talking with the broadcasters. Were there any other things that you did to make sure that you were keeping up with that day-to-day? Well, it turned out that those conference calls were essentially useless, except that we got to interact with our friends that we never see uh, because of the pandemic. Those guys were just as clueless about their team as we were about ours. So it ended up being just a, hey, how you been kind of a session. Every once in a while, you'd, you'd get a nugget that you wouldn't know. But it's not the same because when we would travel or those guys would travel here, they had interaction with their team. So they had a bunch of stuff that we wouldn't find out in the game notes or reading the paper or going to websites. Uh, And in the end, it was just us and the other broadcasters. We didn't interact with print guys, primarily because we knew they were just as clueless as we were. Uh, And time management is important in this job. So, you know, we set up the conference calls and they were beneficial from the standpoint of we got to stay in contact with guys we wouldn't have seen otherwise, but turned out they didn't know any more about their teams than we knew about ours. So there there was not a lot of information gathering. And also part of this past season for you on some sad notes, uh, losing a Slick Leonard, uh, your longtime radio partner, just how difficult was that moment when he did pass away in those broadcasts following that? Well, it was extremely difficult and not just for me, but for everybody involved. He's been with our franchise since it started back in the late 60s as an ABA team. I met him when I came here in the late 80s. So there have been people that have known him for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. He was married for over 60 years. He's got children and grandchildren and he had a great local support staff. He has five kids and all but one live in town here. So as his health started to decline, they were always there for Slick and Nancy. Uh, The last two seasons, uh, well, the last season plus the the restart last year and then this season, uh, he wasn't with us physically at all. We decided it wasn't a good idea for him to come downtown Uh, because of the pandemic. So we got him on the phone three times a night. We did a pregame segment with him. We did a halftime segment with him. And then we did a postgame segment. But other than that, he'd been with us on our broadcasts uh, since the mid-90s. Before that, he did television. But it's beyond that. He he became such a, a confidant, such a good friend. This is how close I was to his family. When I decided to buy a house, I'd been here for seven or eight years and I figured, well, I, maybe I'll be here for a while. So I stopped renting and I, and I started to look for a house. And when I did, Slick's wife, Nancy, was my real estate agent and Slick's son, Tommy, built my house. So that's how close I was to the family. And it was very difficult for all of us. But I try to look at it and still do as uh, this. It was sad, really sad, but it was not unexpected. We knew it was coming. He'd been in ill health for a while. And so I tried to look at it as the man lived almost 90 years. He was on with us the night before he passed. He died in his sleep. Now, I'm sad he's gone, but when my time comes, I hope I go that way. That's how I try to look at it. I I knew the man for 30 plus years, and it was a delight. And so I try to focus on that rather than being sad. But every once in a while, it still hits you. And, and, uh, you know, grief is... Uh, it's an individual thing. I don't know how others are dealing with it, but uh, that's how I've tried to deal with it. And what made him such a great radio partner for you? 
there were a variety of things. Uh, we were so different. Uh, he was the expert. I was the broadcaster. He had a passion for the Pacers. Not that I don't, but my passion was more for the broadcast. And so our strengths and weaknesses would offset one another. A lot of times you'll listen to a broadcast and the two guys are similar. There'll be a questionable call on the floor and they both go nuts. There'd be a call on the floor in our game and Slick would start complaining and I would say, uh, are you sure about that? <laughs> we just offset each other. I was able to bring him back to center. Uh, he was able to get me caught up in his passion. Um, I, th I think that we worked well together because we were friends, because our styles were different. Uh, once we went on the air, our goals were different. His goal was for the Pacers to win, even though he couldn't impact it. He would cheer. Uh, but the great thing about him was he, he was a homer, but not in the traditional sense. If somebody did something that warranted criticism, he was right there with it. And, and so our broadcasts, I hope, when people listen, they hear that we're Pacers guys, but they trust us because we're not blind. We aren't calling games through blue and gold lenses. Uh, Slick was, but I wasn't. And the combination of the way we did things, I think, worked for us. And plus, he's such a folksy, humorous guy. And the beauty of it is his humor is unintentional. He would say stuff <laughs> that would have us all laughing, and he'd be looking around, what's funny? Uh, he was just a wonderful guy. And his status as a franchise icon, and not just a franchise icon, he grew up in Indiana. Uh, he was a state high school tennis champion. He played on a, a really good high school basketball team back when high school basketball was huge. Then he played at IU, made the game-winning free throw in a national championship game. So his legacy with Hoosier fans goes all the way back to the 50s. And he was, uh, I would say you could argue that he's the single most important person in the history of our franchise because of his longevity because of the fact that he and his wife put together a telethon. I don't know if this is common knowledge, but it is here. Uh, it looked like the team was maybe going to have to move or possibly even fold back in the early 80s. They didn't have, it was before the Simons bought the team. Uh, they did a telethon to raise enough money to keep the Pacers afloat. Now, without that, would there be an Indiana Pacers today? And if there was not an Indiana Pacers, uh, how would the downtown be? It's vibrant now. It's thriving. We've had a Super Bowl here. We have the Final Fours here. There's a state-of-the-art basketball arena here. There's a new football stadium here, relatively new. There's a beautiful AAA baseball park. You can walk from one to the other to the other. And I'm not saying that Slick and Nancy are the ones that are responsible for the, for the revitalization of downtown, but had they not saved the Pacers, who knows how that might have gone. So he wasn't just my broadcast partner. He was my friend, uh, and he was a franchise icon beyond compare. And, and I heard you tell a story back in the 94 Eastern Conference Finals where, you know, he was too nervous in, in yeah. that series and he got up and he went to smoke a cigarette and he came back with three minutes left. You know, that was yep. just the kind of guy that, yep. that Slick well, was. He, but this was our... Go ahead, Mark. That was, that was just a, one of a hundred stories like that. He would get so emotionally involved. Now, in his later years, he was confined to a wheelchair and so he wasn't as mobile. But before that, he would just, at first when he would get up, I was taken aback and it wasn't that it happened all that frequently, but every once in a while he gets so upset that he would just leave. <laughs> He'd go, I don't know where he went, I guess out to have a cigarette or something, but he would just leave and come back. Um, and I just came to accept it. Although the one thing I did ask him to do after he had his second heart attack, 
when he would get up and leave, I would say, hey, I, you need to tell the engineer why you're going. Are you dying? Are you, do you need a cigarette? <laughs> We're a little concerned about you. And he would always lean to his left and tell Scott Fence to make our engineer, I'm going out to do whatever, instead of just walking. And so that was the concession as, he, as his health started to decline. But he was so emotionally involved and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful fellow. And take me back to the start of your career, because it's an interesting journey. You, you've been to different cities and you've been to, been to some big radio stations, but you started out cutting your teeth in Montana. You know, yeah. I read making $500 a month and, and $10 uh, a game. Don't forget about that. $10 a game where the press box, the, the wind blew the press box yeah. over, correct, in a game. Can yeah. you tell me that story? Do you have any nightmare stories besides you know, <laughs> that one and then the others from Montana? Well, this was my first job and I made $500 a month plus $10 a game. And I was doing high school basketball games, high school football games, uh, American Legion baseball and junior college basketball. But the bulk of my job was I was a disc jockey. This is a tiny little town. And in those days you did everything, uh, which was an invaluable experience because you learn how to do so many different things. Uh, I would engineer my own broadcasts. I did farm reports. I was a news guy. I was a disc jockey. Uh, we did all kinds of things. The story you're referencing uh, was a high school football game in a little town called Circle, Montana. And the press box was uh, maybe 10 feet off the ground. It was, it was a, a little hut on top of four wooden poles. So you climbed up a, a, a little ladder to get there. And the thing was small. It was me. Uh, and this is a long time ago, so I, I might be a little fuzzy. I think it was, I think, I didn't have a color guy. It was me and I think maybe the scoreboard operator were two guys in there. And the other guy had nothing to do with me. He was just in there. And it was windy and you could feel it kind of swaying a little bit, but yeah, yeah it blew over right in the third quarter. We weren't hurt. We got knocked off the air. And uh, yeah, uh, there's so many stories like that. You know, I, uh, when I was doing junior hockey in Iowa, uh, we broadcast games in this in one of the buildings, not ours, but one of the one of the opponent's buildings from the penalty box. And, uh, you know, so I'm sitting right next to the guys in the penalty box. You wouldn't believe the language that got on the air there. Uh, those experiences, though, you look back at them and they're all so crucial in your development, because what they teach you is how to adapt, how to deal with any circumstance. And when I was in Montana, I lived on top of a hill overlooking the Yellowstone River. And Montana's cold. And so the river would ice over. And every spring it would thaw, and they called it the ice flow. And so my boss said to me, hey, you live on, on, the, on top of the hill, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, take the equipment up to your apartment. And the only reason I lived up there is because I was making $500 a month. I couldn't afford anything else. And nobody wanted to live up there because in the winter, you were taking your life in your hands every time you came down that hill. So that was my only choice. So he said, take the equipment up there, broadcast the ice flow. I said, okay. So I go up there and there's nothing quite as challenging as sitting there for 40 minutes with no commercial breaks, no partner, talking about ice cracking and flowing slowly down a river. So I didn't enjoy it, but when you look back on it, you think, okay, that taught me something too. Almost everything I did, in those smaller towns was a valuable experience. And if I do have a regret in my career, it's that I was so obsessed with getting to the next place and so looking forward 
that I just didn't enjoy those experiences as much as I should have. I wish I would have had the maturity and the experience, but you know, I was 19 when I started. I wish I would have had the maturity and the experience to go, you know, this, this is not where I want to stay, but it's pretty cool. The people are nice. The town is quaint. I just never appreciated any of that because I was, I was too eager to leave. And really, that's probably the only regret I have about my career. I wish I would have taken better advantage of the opportunity to enjoy those experiences. Yeah, during that time, did you have kind of a dream job in your mind? Did you have a grand plan that you were trying to follow at that time? Uh, not really. When I started, I wanted to be a net. Well, I wanted to do baseball. That's why I got it. I wanted to be a baseball broadcaster. But beyond that, I wanted to be a network television guy. Uh, then when I started, I just loved radio. And I've done some television over the years. It's not nearly as fulfilling to me. It's not nearly as rewarding. So as my career evolved, my goals changed. I still wanted to do baseball, but the opportunities I had as a young broadcaster were so rare and I was so fortunate, but they weren't in baseball. I was doing Big Ten stuff when I was in my early 20s. I was working in the NHL when I was in my mid-20s. And so my career moved in a different direction. And I'm not, <laughs> I talk about not being wise enough or experienced enough uh, to enjoy some of the things that happened to me. I was smart enough to understand, well, yeah, Big Ten foot. No, I'm a baseball guy. No, no, no. I understood, hey, this is a great opportunity. And so my career went in a different direction. And ultimately, what I decided I wanted to do uh, was be a play-by-play -play guy on radio for a team. I wanted it to be baseball, but I didn't really care. And I was never a guy that had a desire to work for my hometown team. Now, I'm from Minneapolis, and when I was in the NHL, I was the pregame and between periods guy for the North Stars when they were there, and I was the fill-in play-by-play guy. Uh, and had they offered me a job, I would have stayed. But my goal was never to get back home. I didn't care where. I had only an interest in getting to the major league level. Uh, it turned out to be with the Pacers. But it could have been with the Cleveland Cavaliers or the you know Chicago Cubs or whomever, I didn't care. I just wanted a major league play-by-play -play job. And, and that started to be my goal maybe two or three years into my career. But when I first got into the business, I wanted to be a network TV guy. And then your journey, as you mentioned, eventually leads you to Indiana. What were some of the stops along the way that were really notable and shaped you even more? Well, they're all notable. I started in Miles City. Uh, and then I went to a town called Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. It's up in northern Minnesota near the North Dakota border. I'll tell you a quick story about that. This is how uh, <laughs> I look back on some of this stuff. I was making $500 a month in Montana. And I became friendly with a guy who was about my age who was bagging groceries at Safeway, which uh, I think it's a national grocery chain. Uh, and he told, and he drove a, a Trans Am, which I thought was so cool. My car was held together by scotch tape and nuts and bolts, and it could barely get me where I wanted to go. I thought, this guy's my age. He's driving a Trans Am. These guys at the grocery store must make a lot of money. I asked him how much money he made, and he told me I made $10,000 last year. And so I divided that by 12, and I realized that was $833.33 a month. So I applied for this job in northern Minnesota, and they like my tape. These tiny towns, they don't fly you in. The whole thing's done on the phone. And so the guy says, okay, you're our guy. How much money do you want? Now I'm 20 years old or, or so, 
too stupid to understand rule number one of negotiating is you never throw out the first figure. And so I said, I want $833.33 a month. And there's a pause on the other end. And he says, well, we pay 815. And I said, I want $833.33 a month. Now I would have gone for the 815. There's another pause and he says, I don't know why you want $833.33 a month, but I, it seems important to you. I, I'll give it to you. Well, I got there and I was making my $10,000 a year and I was still broke. So I later, I, I knew this, but it just didn't calculate. My friend with the Trans Am was living with mom and dad and you know, he didn't have expenses. That's why he was rich and I was broke. So I was there for a year and a half. That was my first opportunity to do hockey. I did high school hockey up there. And then I went down to Dubuque, Iowa. And that's when I first got involved doing Big Ten stuff. In those days, um, there were no, well, there might've been, but exclu exclusivity was rare. Iowa, for example, had seven stations doing games. Uh, you would never see that now. So the opportunities that existed for a young person then are not there now. There's no way a kid in his low twenties is doing Big Ten football and basketball unless he's working for a campus station. Uh, so I was there for a while, and then I uh, went up to central Minnesota, a town called St. Cloud, which was an hour north of, of Minneapolis. Then I went to Minneapolis. That uh, was my first major market job. And then I was in New York and St. Louis and here. And if you'll indulge me, I, I, I don't know what your demographic is here, people listening to this. I want to tell a story that I tell kids all the time, uh, if you'll indulge me. When I was in central Minnesota, I'm an hour north of Minneapolis. Uh, and we were an affiliate for the Minnesota North Stars Network. And I was busy. Uh, by then I was just doing sports, but I had two sports casts in the morning, two in the afternoon. I was doing high school games and small college games. And I was working countless hours. I get a call from the sports director of KSTP in Minneapolis, which is the flagship. He says, hey, listen, I got uh, 80 games. I got two intermissions a night. I got 160 intermissions I need to fill. I'm calling around to our affiliates to see if any of you would like to put together a feature on hockey in your town. Pretty good idea for him. And my first thought was, man, I don't have time for that. Well, I made time for it and I did it as best I could. I sent it, they used it. This is maybe in November or December. Then in April or May, I get a call from the general manager of the station. He says, hey, I heard that hockey feature you did for us. Uh, I have an opening for a sports director. You want to come down and talk to me? I did. And he hired me. And then, and this man's name is Scott Meyer. He then went to New York and became the first general manager of the first all sports station in the country. And he took me with him. So had I half-assed that feature, who knows where my career has gone? The lesson I always use, tell when I use this story is never forget this. You never know who's watching and you never know who's listening. Do not do anything at a level lower than the best you can. You never know what's gonna happen. I like to think I'm talented enough that I would have succeeded anyway, but that's ego talking. All of us need breaks and that was my break. This guy heard my stuff, invited me to come and interview, hired me once, hired me twice. And then I'm in my twenties, now I've got a major market station in Minneapolis. I've got WFAN on my resume. You think guys who are hiring, and by the way, the guys that are hiring are morons. Most of them don't know what they're doing. So they look at a resume and say, hey, this guy's got Minneapolis and New York. He must be good. Let's bring him. 
the resume and the experience is important. And so never do anything less than 100%. And that's the last time in this conversation that I'll be on the soapbox. This is a soapbox uh, podcast, so it's it's perfect. Ah, okay. Um, let me ask you this, FAN, because I'm born and raised in New Jersey, and I, I grew up listening to Mike and the Mad Dog and, and you know, after really the, the birth of it. And you were there for the birth of that station and the birth of a 24-7 sports talk radio station, which nobody thought would work. Now, every market has one. For you, what was that experience like being on the air in New York City and, and almost kind of like what people thought would be a sinking ship at that time, right? Yeah. FAN. Yeah, well, it was less traumatic for me than it would have been for some because I was young and single. I didn't have to uproot a family or worry about anything like that. It would have been a much more difficult choice had those been factors in my decision, but they weren't. So I knew the worst case scenario was I was going to get New York on my resume. That would be the worst thing that would happen to me. But it was stressful because we never knew for sure. We didn't know what we were doing. There was no prototype. Uh, and so the money they wasted early on was amazing. We used to have this format where um, there would be what they called updates. This was before the internet. And so they were important. Uh, you couldn't just get information at the snap of a finger. So they do updates at 15, 30, 45 in the top of the hour. Now, I'm not saying those didn't require skill. They did. They were flying guys in from Dallas and Houston to do updates. I mean, they were wasting extraordinary amounts of money because they didn't know what they were doing. Why would they? The whole thing was trial and error. Um, but it was a great opportunity. Uh, I started as an update guy, and that was my essential job the whole time I was there. I was there for about a year. Uh, but they'd let me do some fill-in shows on the weekends and some other stuff. And that was valuable experience, too. And then working with guys that were much more accomplished than I was. Uh, when I started there, Greg Gumbel was our morning guy. Uh, Jim Lampley was our afternoon guy. Uh, Pete Franklin, who was a legendary talk show host from Cleveland, uh, was our drive time guy in the afternoon. I think Jim was noon to three and then Pete came on. Um, and so you saw how guys like this went about their business. You know, you mentioned Mike and the Mad Dog. Chris was at another station in New York then. I never did meet Chris. Mike was with us, but he was a behind the scenes guy. He was a researcher for CBS. Uh, and then he worked his way into doing his own shows. And, and now he's like, well, he's retired, but he's the godfather of, of sports talk. So seeing those kinds of people and some of the younger guys I worked with have, have become very accomplished. Also, Howie Rose is the voice of the Mets now. He was with us back in the day. Uh, you know, and some of the behind the scenes types have gone on to major management positions. Steve Cohn, who is one of our producers, is now the vice president of, of sports programming at Sirius XM. A lot of guys have gone on to do a lot of things. And I, I tried to learn from all of them. I, I looked at their approaches. What are they doing that I could incorporate? Uh, do they have, you know, there are no secrets, but do they have things they do that I hadn't figured out? I never tried to copy anyone else, but I always tried to be alert to things that I could incorporate uh, in terms of my own preparation or my own approach or my own delivery or whatever. Uh, I was there for about a year and then I went to St. Louis and it was a really valuable experience. And I, I do think uh, this is getting a little bit more into the history of the station than probably you had planned to, but I'm convinced that it would have failed if not for two things. Number one, Jeff Smolian, who owned it and had the idea. He just stuck with it. He believed in it. And number two, we were sinking. 
And then uh, they got the 660 frequency. We started at 1050, which is not a good frequency. 660, though, is dynamic. And then Don Imus came and started to do the mornings. And that's when things started to turn around. Had Imus not come, who knows what would have happened. But he did, and they thrived. And I don't know where they're at now, but I do know that for a number of years, they were the top billing radio station in the country. Um, I don't know how the pandemic and some of the other things that have come into play in recent years have affected revenues for sports radio stations, but they were a giant, still are. Uh, and once they succeeded, like you said, now there's multiple sports talk stations in every market. And, and the, 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 the only disappointing thing for me in that regard is this, uh, not saying it's bad business practice, you're in it to make money, but the decreasing presence of local content is disappointing to me. A lot of these all sports stations just simulcast, uh, not simulcast, but uh, ESPN syndicates their programming. They might have a morning guy live, but the rest of it, I can get that anywhere. Local content is so important to me. That's as a listener though. I, I'm not an operator and maybe that's the best way to do it, especially as radio is in troubled waters now. But uh, I, I like the all local content. That would be my consumer complaint. Yeah, there's only, there's only so many times you can hear LeBron versus Jordan debate on your radio, right? Um, well, let's flash ahead in your career a little bit. So you get the Pacers job at a fairly young age. For you, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of guys that are and gals that, that would want a job like that. So at that age, how do you stand out amongst the crowd to, to get that job? How does that come about? Well, circumstances are so important, and so is timing, and so is luck. I left New York in July of 88 to go to St. Louis. It was a dream job for me. It was KMOX, which doesn't resonate now as it did then. KMOX was a legendary AM radio station. Uh, Bob Costas started there. Jack Buck worked there. Uh, Harry Carey worked there. It was just, and I always wanted to work there as a kid. When I was in Minneapolis, I'd sit in my bedroom at night and listen and at night, you could hear stations all over the country. A KMOX would come into Minneapolis and, oh, how cool would it be to work there? Well, one of our producers in New York had worked there. So he had inside information and he said, hey, they're, they're looking for a guy. You should apply. So I did. And they were really scrupulous in their hiring practices. I had to fly out there twice to audition. Uh, and this is where I made a mistake. It worked out. I knew when I auditioned that I wasn't a good fit there. They were a buttoned down, laid back. This is how we've always done it kind of a station. That's not a criticism. They were, they were pulling down 40 shares in those days, which is, is impossible now. But, and they were making money hand over fist and they were a CBS owned and operated. They were the gold standard. So they weren't doing anything wrong. They were doing what worked for them, but that wasn't my style. I am flip, I am irreverent, didn't work. And I knew it wouldn't, but I wanted to go there. And so I did. And this leads into the answer to your question. I didn't have a contract. So it took me like 10 minutes to realize that this was not a good fit. So I started calling around to my contacts, seeing what else was out there. And somebody told me that the Dallas Mavericks were looking for a radio guy. So I called there and they said, ah, um, we, uh, we were looking, our number two guy, Ted Davis, took the Pacers job, but our number one guy, I think it was Dave Barnett at the time, he went somewhere. So they called Ted, Ted got out of his contract and went back to Dallas. 
So this guy tells me, but the Pacers might be looking for a guy. Call them. So I did. And here's where timing comes in. We're like in late August, early September now. Training camp's about to start. They don't have a guy. Uh, and so I sent them my stuff. They liked it. I interviewed. They hired me. Uh, I got there maybe two days before training camp started. So had that job been open four weeks previous, they might have had a whole different pool of candidates. They wouldn't have been desperate. So it worked out for me from a timing perspective, and that's how I got that job. You've been there ever since, doing a great job on radio for the Pacers. And now let's dive into a little bit of your philosophy when it comes to play-by-play. What is good basketball on the radio in your eyes? What do you want to make sure you give the audience each and every broadcast? Well, there's a basic, and I always say this, and it's so ironic, because first of all, play-by-play broadcasting, especially on radio, in my opinion, is an art and not a science. There's no one way to do it. But the one thing all of us should be doing that requires literally no skill, let me ask you something. If you get into your car and turn on a broadcast, what is the first thing you want to hear? The score. score. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Time and score, and it takes no skill. And we've all gone through this. We get into our car, we turn on the radio, because we want to see what's going on with Georgetown and Seton Hall or whomever. Uh, hello, could I get a score, please? Is that possible? It amazes me that more guys don't do it. Uh, but that's just, that is the basic that you build out from. The rest of it is description. And for me, as a young boy listening to radio broadcasts, um, the thing that mesmerized me was I'm sitting in my bedroom listening to this game from Los Angeles, I can see it. I can see it and I'm not there. That was so fascinating to me. And I think that's the common denominator of all good play-by-play guys. You can see it. You can see what's happening. So that's what I strive to do. Be as descriptive as possible. And, and you refine your act over a year. Repetitions are the key, just as they are in anything. When you're starting, and I found this to be problematic for me when I was starting, that's what I wanted to do. Still is. But I was so obsessed with not missing anything that I spoke too rapidly. I was trying to describe too many things. It's an evolution. The more games you do, the more you figure out what your priorities are, and you're not even conscious about it. For example, in one of our games, we have a 24-second clock. It's a fast-paced game. If the ball comes across the timeline, what do you think the listener would rather hear? Uh, Pacers up 55-52, four minutes left in the third quarter, or Jones has it high left side. I can miss a couple of those perimeter passes to give time and score. You have to prioritize. And I always try to stay, and this is I know this is counterintuitive, and I know from speaking to kids, in, in college and high school classes, that this is not how it's taught, at least not most of the time. I tell guys, stay a half beat behind the play. Don't be obsessed with being on the play. A half beat behind the play will never be noticed by the listener. First of all, the listener can't see it. Second of all, if the listener has turned down the television volume and is synced with your broadcast, a half a beat still isn't noticed and you will cut your mistakes dramatically. Too many guys in an effort to stay on top of the play, I think call the play before it happens and you make needless mistakes. I don't know how many mistakes I make in a broadcast. It's in the dozens. I'm sure of that. 
but much less than it would be if I didn't stay a half beat behind the play. Uh, beyond that, I try to be descriptive. Uh, I want my credibility to somebody that listens to me on a regular basis and starts to figure out how I do it. I want my credibility to be unquestioned. So I will never jump on an official for no reason. It, it amazes me and it's becoming prevalent. More and more guys are being homers at the local level. It amazes me like when I watch an NBA telecast and if there's 30 bad calls in a game, A, you reference all of them and B, they're all against your team. What are the odds of that? I, I don't want to be that guy and I'm not criticizing that guys have made a living being that guy. And that's when I say it's an art, not a science. It's all about the way you approach it. Does it resonate with your audience? Um, and I decided this at an early age. I realized from listening to so many different guys that there's no one way to do it. And so I decided to do it the way I wanted to hear it. That's how I do it. Now you have to take other things into account. Who do you work for? What do they want? Uh, if that doesn't work for you, then you need to find something else because you have to respect who you work for and what they want. If I worked for a team that said, hey, you know, we're the uh, Sheboygan Wheat Shockers. We want everyone to cheer for us, you too. Okay, I can't do that, I'll move on. But if I take that job, then I better be able to do it because I'm obligated and I said I would. Uh, and this will lead me to one quick story when I took this job. This was the first time I ever worked for a team. I'd done stuff, but I'd always worked for the station. So there's a level of independence there. Uh, Donnie Walsh was the guy that hired me. He ran our franchise for many, many years and then ran the Knicks. And he's still around as a consultant. Uh, one of the great, great management types in the sport over the years. And he hired me and I said, hey, listen, I, I want this job, but I do have a concern. I, I will give you whatever talent I have. That's yours. That's what you're paying for. You cannot have my credibility. I will not give it up. And I've never worked for a team and so I, it's a built-in conflict of interest. How do we deal with that? And he said to me, I don't care what you say, as long as you're fair and don't get personal. And he stuck to that. Larry Bird stuck to that. Kevin Pritchard sticks to that. Now, I have had a few, I wouldn't call them run-ins, but I've had a few differences of opinion with our marketing people. Marketing people don't always see it that way. Uh, but the basketball people have been fine, and that's been our philosophy. And by now, I've been here long enough that that's been established as my MO, and it's just accepted. Uh, but not everyone's as fortunate as I am. Plus, not everyone wants to do it the way I do it. Uh, and so different strokes for different folks. And I was lucky that I landed with a franchise that valued the same things I did. Kyle will dive into this. Uh, he's our descriptors guy. So we'll be uh, talking about vocabulary in just a moment. But I am curious about your play-by-play -play, uh, preparation process. So what do you like to do to get ready? I don't know if you have any spotting boards with you that you could show us, but what's important for you to have with you each and every broadcast? Well, over the years, you develop a routine and it changes. Even now I'm refining it. I'll look at my charts or my notes. Uh, maybe I could do that better. Maybe that, if I did it this way, would be a little bit more effective. But I'll, I'll show you the staples. Now, I have a bunch of stuff with me, some of which I never even refer to. I have my live reads. I need those. I have stats, which sometimes I look at, sometimes I don't. I'm a big stats conscious guy from the standpoint of I don't want to flood my broadcast with stats. I try to use numbers only contextually. For example, 
if a guy off of the Pacers bench or off of the opponent's bench for that matter is averaging 7.3 points per game, you'll never hear me mention that unless he goes for 20. And then I'll say, here's a guy averaging seven a game and he's got 20. Context is important to me. 7.3 is nothing. Who cares? Also, I never use 0.3. What is 0.3 points? I will say he's averaging just over seven a game or just under seven, whatever. But that's me. These are my staples. I have what I call my game sheet. Can you see it? Uh, it's some notes on both teams, some numbers that I may or may not use, bullet points. I do not script. I have never scripted anything. I don't believe in it because it sounds scripted. Now, I'm not diminishing scripting. It works for some guys. I just ad lib off of my bullet points. Uh, so this is a right. This uh, I've cleaned it up a bit because the season's over, but this was the one I used for our last play in game, which uh, the Pacers lost to the wizards. So there's some notes there on the season. Uh, you know, you can see the records, the uh, numbers that I consider significant, which I, again, I may or may not use some bullet points that I might refer to from time to time. And that's always my top sheet off to the side. My main sheet is my score sheet, or as some would say charts, one for each team. Uh, I keep score on this. Each guy has some notes under it. Now, they're very subjective. Uh, they're my notes. Uh, the one thing that every player has in his little box there is his height, weight, college, experience, birth date. And then below that, every player's draft year, how he was drafted, his past experience, NBA, CBA, Europe, and so forth. The rest of the notes are my own subjective things that I think are important. So as I'm keeping score... I can uh, possibly look down and see notes at the same time. I keep, I, I, I came up, you know, from the bottom of the stack. So I was used to keeping my own score. When I was doing small college games, I kept my own rebounds. I did, I, now we have stat. If I wanted to, I could get by without doing any of this uh, in terms of keeping score. We have a stat monitor right next to us. I do keep my points because I can then say, well, he's got 23 points, 11 here in the third quarter. I like to keep track of that. It keeps me engaged. Um, and the other thing about keeping these charts is this. There are services out there, and a lot of our guys in the NBA use them. They'll put these together for you. You tell them what you want. Uh, and I know guys that swear by it. The reason I do my own is because as I'm preparing, stuff just sticks with me better if I do it myself. Uh, that's not to say that these services aren't valuable. As I said, some guys swear by them, but this is how I do it. Um, it takes more time for the opponent than it does for us because I know our guys better. Um, my preparation for the opponent is generally this. I, I'm online every day for a couple hours reading, looking at websites, trying to stay up with the league, but uh, I work a week at a time. So what I do is this. Uh, let's say this, uh, let's say today is, well, today is Tuesday. So let's say we're in the season. We have a game tomorrow against New York. And then Friday, we're home against Clippers. Sunday, we're home against Dallas. Uh, Tuesday, we go to Philadelphia. So I'm focused on those four opponents in reverse order. The, the first one that the Pacers are playing is the one I'm most concerned with. But I start reading their local papers a little bit more aggressively in the week leading up to the game. Uh, if I have a contact that I consider to be credible, I might call him, ask him, hey, what's going on with this or that? Um, and then I watch a minimum of one game, preferably the most recent game, 
before. Like if, for example, if, if the Pacers are playing Philadelphia tomorrow, I would be watching their last game. Uh, and I don't really watch it. I put it on. I, uh, you can't see my house here, but I have a loft up there and that's where my office is. My television is in the living room. I can't see it from where the loft. I don't care. I don't need to see it. I need to hear it. And TV is so much better than radio for garnering information because radio, you have to be focused on the play-by-play. -play. You don't have time to share nuggets and stuff. And uh, these telecasts, you'll learn stuff that you would never learn from the game notes, just little anecdotes. And I may use them or I may not, but they help me put everything into context. And my goal, which I have never accomplished, <laughs> my goal is to find out one thing that nobody else knows about every player. Not literally nobody else knows, otherwise how would I find it out? But it's not in the media guide, it's not in the game notes, it didn't appear in a newspaper article. And that was where back in the day you could really gather information. I'm at the building, I'm talking to the beat writer or the broadcaster, or I might know a coach with the other team that I can chat with. These assets are tremendous sources of information. And as you're around for a long time, and you establish your own credibility and relationships, these people know to trust you. They know they can tell you stuff and they know that you'll know how to use it or not use it at all, but they're willing to tell you stuff because they trust you. And that's why you go to practice, uh, not to learn about, gee, how are they gonna trap against Cleveland? You might learn that, but it's really about, I want these people to see me there. I wanna to talk to them on a regular basis. I want them to know they can trust me. So when I ask them something, they'll tell me straight. Now, not everyone will, but uh, you do the best you can. It's all about relationships in terms of gathering information. You can get enough without knowing anyone. I can, especially uh, when I started, <laughs> there was no internet. There was nowhere to get stuff. If I wanted to uh, read about the Cleveland Cavaliers, I had to go to the library and, and go read the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And I did it. Now I'm old now and I'm too lazy to do it. So I'm glad the internet is here. Uh, I compare, you know what, guys, I compare a broadcast to an iceberg. Um, the actual two hours or whatever it is on air is the ice above the water. The, the rest of it uh, is below the water, the preparation, the people that help you behind the scenes, all of that. No one sees or hears that. Or, or to put it another way, it's like building a house. If you build a house with a crappy foundation, it's going to collapse eventually. But if you build a house with a good foundation, then the rest of it will stand for years. The preparation is the foundation. The broadcast is the rest of the house. Uh, and there are guys that are talented enough that they can do a game without any preparation. But sooner or later, it catches up to you. And, and when I say they can do it, they have the skill to do it. They can call the game. They can. Uh, but I always operate under the assumption that there's at least one listener out there and probably more that knows more about my team than I do because they're obsessed and I'm never going to fool that guy. And so I'm not going to try. That's why I prepare. Plus I just want to do it right as I define right. And that's when I'll know there, there are, there are three ways where I'll know when it's time to quit. One, they tell me, Mark, uh, <laughs> you've done great, but it's tough. That's one. Two is I don't enjoy the preparation anymore. That's a sign to me that I don't, I enjoy the preparation as much as the broadcast. And then three is, you know, physical and mental decline. I, I try to stay in shape, 
at least for a guy that's 100 years old. I try to stay alert. I do jigsaw puzzles, crossword puzzles. I read. I try to stay sharp. But some of those things are beyond your control. So if you start to have a physical or a mental decline, then it might be time. Or if you, to me, though, if I, if I don't enjoy the preparation, then it is time. And I will quit then. That'll be the one obvious one for me. Uh, you know, the, the mark we don't need you anymore will probably come out of the blue because I have a large enough ego that I can't imagine anyone not wanting me around anymore. But let's face it. Uh, who said this? It was a ball player. Uh, Father time gets all of us. And it will get all of us. I want to I leave, though, before it gets me if I can. Mark, how do you avoid the burnout? I know we, we take everything in, in context, right? You're the voice of an NBA team and you could be a construction worker and, and working in the sun 10 hours a day. But for you, over three plus decades of traveling a lot, back-to-backs, being in hotels, how, how, do you, how do you manage your time? How do you make sure that you don't get burnout, you don't get run down and, and it doesn't show on the air with the amount of preparation that you're doing? It could be easy to, to hit that burn down state. Yeah, it could be. Uh, I think the answer to that is part personality oriented. Um, I want the Pacers to win, but I don't get emotionally involved in the outcome. Uh, when someone says to me, hey, hey, do you do you care if the team wins? And I this is I have a variety of responses. This is my flip response. I care about the Pacers doing well as much as they care about whether my broadcast went well. I'm kidding, of course. The players don't give a damn about you, and I don't give a damn about them is what I'm saying, but it's not true. Uh, but I can't tell you how many guys over the years, uh, as we travel around, NBA guys I'm talking about, how's it going? Oh, man, it's been so tough. We're losing. You know what? And I, I'll never know because this will never happen. I am 100% certain if the Pacers were 0-82, and 82, I would enjoy this job just as much as I enjoy it now. Now, it would be more difficult because the players and coaches would be stressed out, so you'd have different interpersonal relationships. But the work itself, I don't find it stressful in the least. I find it exhilarating. Um, one of my other goals, which I've also never realized, except that now it keeps me stimulated, I want to have a perfect broadcast. I want to get from A to Z without making a mistake, without saying, uh, without mumbling, without stuttering. Uh, as far as I know, I've never gotten past the first three minutes of a game with that, but it's still my unrealistic goal and it keeps me energized. So that's A. And then B is I have never for one minute forgotten how many people would like to have this job, how lucky I am to have it. And so I do not, there are days I like it less than other days, but one of the great things about having a job like this, I, I've been in this business for well over 40 years and there has never been a day where I've said, oh man, I got to go to work. There have been days where I've said, I don't feel that good today. I wish I didn't have to go to practice, but I will. You know, it's context. Really? Really? I'm worn down? Because why? Go, go, uh, go to a local bar or a local restaurant or the grocery store. Just pick out a random guy and say, hey, here's what I do for a living. Uh, but I'm kind of run down, kind of weary. The guy would just look at you like, what in the hell is the matter with you? Now, I do get tired. Our schedule is somewhat grueling. 
And I, I put that in context. You know, we fly, we fly on private charters, we stay in five-star hotels, but there is a physical component. If you land in a city following a game at 2 a.m. and you get to sleep at four and you have a game that same night, if you don't manage your time and if you don't get your rest, it can be physically taxing. I'm not suggesting that. But to me, the question you're asking has more to do with mental than physical. And I am never mentally worn down for the reasons I just told you. And I want to circle back to the descriptor side of it in the play-by-play side, because I've stolen some things from you that I've used in my own broadcast. I like how you use, you describe left of center on the perimeter instead of saying left wing or right wing. Do you have a list of descriptors that you run through? Is it something in the back of your mind that you're saying, you know, I've, I've used this descriptor too much and during a break and you want to make sure that you, you mix it up? Is it something you're always conscious about? It's something I'm always conscious about, but I don't have a list. It's more of a, of a mental thing. I'm acutely aware of overusing phrases, and that's why I still listen to my broadcasts. Uh, I have found from time to time, um, ah, you're using that too much. Uh, whereas if I didn't listen back, I wouldn't be aware. Um, you know, in an NBA game, there can be as many as 200 shots taken. And if both teams are shooting well, a hundred of them are misfires. I don't want to be the guy that says, no good, no good, no good, no good. Now, technically, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and this is another thing I tell kids. This isn't about broadcasting. It's about, it's about being a professional or having options in general. If you can master the English language, which by the way, none of us can, but if you can master it to some great extent, then you can do anything you want, not just in broadcasting. If I can speak and write better than you, then my options are going to be greater than yours. That's just the way it works. And I try to use that vocabulary and that philosophy in our broadcasts. So uh, if a guy posts up, do I want to say it that way all the time? I might say it. Let's say, for example, uh, the Pacers are playing Team X, ball goes into the post. Uh, I might say Turner posted up on the left block, ball is bounced in by Brogdon. Or I might say, Turner muscles his way down low on the left side. It's the same thing with different phrasing. And again, it's all about repetition. You get to the point once you've done enough games that you're not thinking about how should I say this? How should I say that? You have developed your vocabulary enough and there's no limit to what you can do with vocabulary or where you can get different phrasing. Uh, you say you've copied some of my stuff. I'm sure I've copied other guys' stuff. But I'll be watching a television show, and I'll hear one of the characters say something. And, hey, that's a word I could use to describe that. Always be aware of different opportunities to expand your vocabulary. Because to me, that's one of the other things that uh, I don't know how much you guys watch hockey. And I say this not to denigrate him, but to praise him. Mike Emmerich is a Hall of Famer. I think everybody would agree with that. But there are a number of guys that can describe the action as well as he can in terms of keeping up with it, telling us where the puck is, and so forth. Hardly anyone, if anyone, has his vocabulary, and that's why he stands out. The puck is ladled up the boards. Who says that? He does. Uh, and so he separates himself because of his vocabulary. And that should be one of the goals 
of younger broadcasters, separating yourself. The competition for these jobs is ferocious. How do you get it instead of guy B or guy C? Well, a lot of that circumstance and all of that. But if I can separate myself from you, that increases my chances. Back to what I talked about before. I was in my 20s. I had New York, Minneapolis, and St. Louis on my resume before I got here. That helped to separate me from the other contenders. If I can use the language better than you, if I'm a better people guy than you, if I have better relationships with you and can use some of those people as resources and references, that can help me separate yourself. You should never stop realizing that part of getting a job in any profession, but especially a competitive profession, you've got to separate yourself because there's a million candidates and only a finite number of jobs. How do you get that job? Well, one of the ways is by separating yourself. And I think in our world, you can do that with language and vocabulary. Mark, a lot of times when I work solo on Alabama women's basketball, I feel like I do a pretty good job getting score in time, getting a lot of descriptors in. And then when I fill in on men's basketball, I'm working with an analyst that's used to speaking a lot. And it's sometimes hard to find that balance and making sure I'm getting all those things in while giving the analyst space. You had some opportunities to work solo and then obviously your long partnership with Select Leonard. Just how do you approach working with a color analyst and making sure you're still sticking to everything you feel like you need to as a play-by-play man? Well, it's, it's different on radio than it is on television because on television, the analyst is the guy, if you're doing it right. On radio, he's there and he can contribute. This is what I do with my guys, whether it was Slick or in recent years, Austin Crozier, Eddie Gill, Scott Pollard. I tell them this, we're just gonna start with this. And after that, we'll see how it goes. Here's the rule. We got one rule and it's this. When I talk, you don't, that's it. Other than that, if I want to bring you in, I will. If you've got something to say, feel free. And that's how we'll start. And then we'll get a feel for each other. And then we'll get more nuanced. And so pursuant to your question, if you're working with multiple analysts, or even if it's just one, and you're going back and forth between solo and an analyst, uh, it can be challenging. I try to look at it as, okay, this guy's an asset or gal. I've also worked with uh, Stephanie White, who was terrific. Um, that's an analyst. I mean, that's an asset. How, how am I going to take advantage of that asset? And if I have to uh, forego saying, for example, uh, during a free throw sequence, uh, Jones is an 82% foul shooter and the Wizards are a terrific foul shooting team. They score more points from the line than any other team in the league. If I have to forego that so that Eddie can say something more interesting, then that's the priority. You, you have to reprioritize. You still prepare the same. Um, I, I use this. I've heard people say you can over-prepare. You cannot over-prepare. That's impossible. You can, however, over-present. And by that, I mean this. I probably use 5 to 10% of the stuff I have on a given night. But I'm glad I have it. So if I have an analyst, I might even use less. Because if this analyst is contributing, then I want them to take that time that I would be using for stats or whatever. These people have a, a perspective I don't. Slick played the game and coached the game. Eddie played the game. Austin played the game. Stephanie played and coached. Uh, Scott played. They have a perspective I don't. That's why they're there. And so when they're not there, we don't have that aspect and I wanna prioritize it. Uh, but there are, there are different styles. Uh, I, would, I would say this, if you have clout as a play-by-play -play guy, and the analyst respects you. Do not let things go too far 
in this single aspect. If your guy's talking too much, don't wait 20 games before you tell him. Tell him immediately. Got it? you got a lot to offer. We're going to get to it. Don't talk when I'm talking. Don't talk over me. Don't talk just to talk. If we go four possessions and you don't say anything, I'm good with that. This isn't TV. This is radio. But if you have something to say, I don't want you to hesitate to say it. You're the professional. Chances are the analyst is inexperienced or has limited experience and is there because he or she is a former player or coach, thus an asset. But A, chances are they don't have a great deal of experience and so may not know how to do it at peak efficiency. And B, they don't know how you want it done. The radio broadcast is the play-by-play guy's you know, theater. And so he or she has to decide how the analyst is going to be used. And a good analyst will understand that you're trying to max him or her out. You know, I don't have the authority here to fire anyone, nor would I try if I did. But if I had a guy or a gal to talk too much, you could bet we'd have a conversation. Uh, it's, it's easy to give more latitude to someone after you've set boundaries than it is to try to set boundaries after you've let them run wild for 20 games. So if they're talking too much or not doing something you need them to do, say, hey, John, um, the reason you're here is because you see the game in a, in a way I don't. So I don't need you to regurgitate stats. Can you tell me why that trap is working? That's why you're here. Uh, so coach them, educate them. It's the same as if, if, if we were hired to be an assistant coach. We might know a little bit about basketball, but we're not qualified to be a coach. So help me. That's the same role in reverse. You're the coach. This guy's on your staff now. You need to help him. And this will be the, the final one, Mark, but if, who, anybody who's ever listened to your play-by-play, you, you have such a conversational tone. And the way you're kind of talking to us right now is the way you're presented on the air. And for a lot of young broadcasters, they tend to want to sound like what they think they hear, which is kind of this robotic broadcaster type sound. For you, how long did it take you to get to this point out there where you're just kind of the same guy? It, it almost sounds easier said than done, doesn't it? Because for me, I, I would say like I want to be more conversational every year. And every time I listen back a year from that tape, I'll say, well, this doesn't sound conversational enough. It, it's just one of those things. It, it seems easy to say it out loud, but it just doesn't happen sometimes. Well, I, I will uh, address that. It's an excellent point. The guys you're talking about, now this is just me. I have a term for those guys. I call them pukers. Uh, Because they sound like this when they're on the air. And they sound like this when they're off the air. I have always been this way, and it wasn't hard for me, and here's why. The guys you listen to growing up, even if it's only subconsciously, have an impact on you. And the guys I listen to, the guys I was lucky enough to listen to growing up in Minneapolis, uh, Herb Carneal was the Twins guy. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Al Shaver was the North Stars guy. He's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. These guys were great broadcasters and they were conversational. I always felt, and this is one of my goals, I always felt that they were talking to me. I'm sorry, talking, yes, to me, with me, not at me. Uh, it's, it made it feel like it was just me and the guy. And it's all about communicating. That's why I use bullet points instead of scripts. I don't want to sound like I'm reading something to you. I want to sound like I'm telling you something that I see. Oh, here's a little interesting note. Uh, It was never hard for me. I never had to transition. I was always like that. 
because those were the guys I grew up listening to. And remember I said earlier that I have decided to broadcast the game the way I want to hear it. And that's how those guys did it. And so that's how I want to hear it. It was never hard for me. Think about it. Why would it be hard for you? If you're on the air two hours a day, even if it's every day of the year, that means you're off the air for 22 hours. Take away the eight hours or so that you're sleeping. That means for 14 hours, you do it this way. Why not just keep doing it that way for the other two hours? I, I don't know. Now, I never went to college, so I don't know if these uh, professors and instructors are telling you. Now, there is something that needs to be mentioned, though. You do need to have a certain level of energy and enthusiasm that you might not have when you're sitting here talking to your friend or your spouse or your coworker. And so that, that takes a little time to get the necessary energy, especially, and this is something that I had a hard time with when I was young. When you're starting off doing small town high school and junior college games, there's like eight people in the gym. And so when you know everybody can hear you, it's a little intimidating to be energetic and enthusiastic. You kind of want to talk like this because it's like being in a library. Well, you got to get past that. But other than that, if you talk a certain way, for 95% of your waking hours, just talk that way with a little more energy when you're on the air. It's not hard. I would think if anything, it's harder to be from this guy that's talking to you guys to well, this guy, how you doing fellas? That's not how I normally talk. I, I, I've never gotten that. And without exception, the guys that I cringe when I listen to are all like that. It's not my thing, but again, the same as the Homer. I know guys like that who have had enormous success. And so who am I to say? I just tell you how I do it. Well, Mark, we know we've kept you for over an hour here on Broadcaster Hour, so we thank you for that, first of all. But I don't know if we're allowed to let you leave an interview without talking just a moment about the malice of the palace. We're almost 20 oh. years from that night. Uh, just are you still feeling any of the health uh, from your vertebrae that were fractured that night? I mean, uh, and, and have you put it more in context the further you've gone away from it? A, a little. Um, first part of that is no, I, I, when I fractured the vertebrae, they healed nicely. And the one thing that the doctor did tell me was when you get older, you might have some back pain. I haven't had any yet and I'll be dead soon. so I'm thinking maybe I won't have any. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, uh, at the time, you know, it didn't, it was unprecedented, but as you were going through it, it was still, okay, this never happened before, but, uh, but then as you get further removed from it, I never watched it until, I don't know, maybe two or three years after. Um, but the impact it's had on the game. Remember as the league tried to wrestle with some of the issues that they thought were in play then, they started to make players wear collared shirts behind the bench and the dress code. And all of that was a direct result of the brawl. Uh, I don't know how they drew cause and effect from guys showing up in chains and t-shirts to fighting in the stands, but whatever, that's their deal. Um, security is increased in the buildings. None of that would have happened had it not been a blowout. Uh, the Pacers were way up at the end of the game. And so the, the affluent folks who sit down low had left and the security wasn't good enough. So the, you know, the blue collar guy who sits up in the bleeds and drinks a lot of beer was allowed to come down. The guy that threw the beer never would be allowed down there in today's game. And so security was changed. A lot of things were changed. Some questionably so, but many for the better. Um, I'll tell you a couple, 
like I'm in the off season. I got hours here. Do you have time for a couple stories? <laughs> okay. So I got two good stories about that. Oh, many, but the two from that night. So the game ends. Uh, I got trampled by Ronnie. Uh, they called the game and they never did play the final, whatever it was, 40 seconds. And I'd also gotten cut above the forehead here. And so it was bleeding. Forehead cuts are almost never serious, but they bleed. So I'm in the locker room after the game. Our trainer was David Craig. And I said, hey, DC, can you take a look at this? Do I need stitches? And so he's looking at it. No, no, I'll just bandage it up. You're good. Well, Ronnie's standing nearby and he says, Mark, what happened to you? <laughs> I said, well, Ronnie, I was the guy you trampled when you went into the stands. <laughs> oh, oh, he says, uh, Ron Artest is like the nicest man ever. Now, he had his issues, which he's fully acknowledged and has addressed. Uh, but he was a troubled man when he was with us, but always a nice, genuine guy. Uh, and at, at the same time, so I'm getting bandaged up and Steven Jackson is standing there. And uh, I said, hey, Steven, nasty stuff, no? No, no, he said, I've been shot at. <laughs> you know, he grew up in tough neighborhoods in Texas. And yeah, his background was a little different than mine. So now we get on the bus, we go to the airport, we're on the plane. And now my back is starting to hurt. And so I tell David, I said, hey, my back's really sore. He said, we'll get you an MRI tomorrow, but for now I'll, I'll put some ice on it. And so I took off my shirt and he strapped some ice uh, to my back. And we didn't have assigned seats on that plane, but this is just the way it evolved. The players, and to this day, the players always sit in the front, the coaches and so forth sit in the middle, and what I call the riffraff, the rest of us, sit in the back. Well, for whatever reason, Ronnie often sat in the back with us. So I'm walking up and down the aisle, my back's hurting. I got ice strapped and <laughs> Ronnie sees me again and he says, Mark, what happened to you? I said, Ronnie, we just had this conversation. Oh yeah, 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 sorry. Um, you know, the, I'm not gonna say those teams were misrepresented, but we, after that, we had some issues, uh, you know, behavioral, that's, that's not the right term, it's too judgmental. We had some issues with guys getting in trouble. Uh, there was a strip club shootout and so forth. Um, and these guys made some mistakes. I'm talking about Steven and Ronnie, Jamal Tinsley. Uh, and I'm not excusing anything that happened during that era. And it's not really important for me to say this, but those were not bad guys. They were good guys that did stupid, immature things doesn't change what they did. The impact is still the same. Um, but I always like to mention that because I, I feel that we, we being fans, we tend to one-dimensionalize players. Why wouldn't we? We don't know them. We only know what we see. So it's fair to think that Ron Artest was a knucklehead back in the days. Well, he was a man with issues that he addressed. Uh, it's fair to think Steven Jackson fired off a, a gun in a parking lot at a strip club. It happened. Um, and I, I'm not saying anyone's wrong to think poorly of those examples, but the one thing you notice when you work closely with people, and it's not just in our world, it's anywhere. Everyone is multi-dimensional. They have issues. They have personality quirks. And shooting a gun off in a parking lot is not a personality quirk. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is, for whatever it's worth, I thought very highly of all of those guys. And to this day, Ronnie is one of my all-time favorites. And I've been here 33 years, and I don't know how many players that is, hundreds. Um, he would do anything for you. And he was a nice man who just had some complex issues.
probably worth nothing. I don't even know why I shared it, but it's a, I, I just like these guys and uh, I don't like people to think poorly of them, even though there's plenty of reason in a world where we tend to judge people, especially now, you know, it, it, guy A, who's the greatest human being that ever walked the face of the earth on Tuesday is a despicable moron who should be fired on Thursday. That's the way it is now. We react instantly with Twitter and all of those other things out there. Uh, so whatever it's worth, these were good guys that did immature, stupid things. Well, and with that incident as well, you're sitting courtside, he's laying on the table. So that's why he trampled you going into the stands. Um, really the final question that we will let you go. Uh, now you're being bounced around all over NBA arenas. It seems like the radio announcers are no longer always courtside. That's still a case. Some places has that been a challenge in recent years as uh, some of the different positions you've had to broadcast from? It's a challenge on a general level, and it's, it's been the case now for a number of years, and each year we lost more courtside spots. The only place we're on the floor now is uh, only places, Phoenix and Chicago. We're on the floor in Detroit, but we're back like three rows of tables, and it's still hard to see the floor. I'd rather be up in a place like that. Uh, the issues to me are twofold. Number one, you're just not able to see the things that you're able to see. You're not able to get the feel for the game that you do on the floor, but that's just the way it is. There's no sense complaining about it or lamenting the way it used to be. Deal with the way it is. Uh, and number two on that is, and this was the, that was the first part wasn't hard for me. I was able to adapt to that part of it pretty easily, but the second part was difficult. Uh, I talked earlier about wanting to have the perfect broadcast. Well, to the extent that it was ever possible, <laughs> forget it now. Uh, and so if you made, let's just say, sitting courtside, let's say I made 40 mistakes a game. I don't, I don't know the number. I'm pulling it out of the air. If you're upstairs, multiply that by three or four. And so I struggled mentally with making more mistakes. Player, You'd be surprised if you're high enough up how many players look the same. Nobody looks the same courtside. Uh, when we had Steven Jackson and Jermaine O'Neal, for example, Similar skin tones, both wore their wristbands the same way, both had single digit numbers. Uh, Steven was one, Jermaine was seven. So it's not like it was one and eight. They looked the same. And from that high up, I can't tell that one guy's taller than the other. Both wore headbands. They looked identical from up there. So until I figured out that generally speaking, if the ball was down low, it was in Jermaine's hands. And if it wasn't, it was in Steven's. Um, but even then, that's not foolproof. You just make mistakes that you would never make courtside. Sometimes there's a rule application. No, I, I take pride in my knowledge of the rules, uh, but I don't know all of them. And sometimes something comes up, or even if it's not a rule interpretation, it's the guy blew the whistle or the gal. Uh, what exactly? It's not a foul. When you're down low, you can pick it up right away. But when you're up there, you stumble a bit. But you get used to it because it's the way it is. If, if you drove a Rolls Royce and then they suddenly told you you're driving a Yugo, well, you figure out how to drive the Yugo. You don't wish you still had the Rolls Royce or if you wish it, you don't lament on it and try to figure out how you're getting it back because you are not getting it back. Uh, TV started to go upstairs now too. So as they figure out how to maximize space, uh, you know, when they first did it, they didn't ask me if I wanted to go up in our building. They told me, but they also said, get with your engineer, tell us what to do. Tell us how to make it as and that, the Pacers are a great organization. They always try to do things the right way. 
And if you ask visiting guys that come into our building, they'll tell you that as far as off the floor locations go, ours is one of the best. Center of the court, not too high up, plenty of working space. They did it the right way. But even had they asked me, had they said, hey, Mark, we're thinking about putting you upstairs, it's going to allow us to generate X hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue. I would say to them, well, I can do it better from courtside, but I can't tell you that it's worth that. So uh, just show me where I'm going. See, that's the other thing. And any job, any job, pick your battle. Don't fight every battle. Because if you do, the ones you really want to fight will be lost in the shuffle. Fight as few as you can. But if something comes up, then stand your ground. And in the end, do what they tell you. But try to generate the respect and the relationships so that if you speak, they listen. That's all you can ask. They're not going to do everything you want. Why would they? They have different concerns than you do. I want to see the game so I can call it as accurately as possible. They're thinking, we don't want to lose $6 million this year. We'd rather lose five. I get it. Your priorities are different than mine. And plus, there's a food chain. You're the boss. I'm not. Tell me what to do. It's very easy to get along. It's, I've always said this, and this is not my uh, saying. I can't remember who said it to me. I've heard it since. You know, it's really easier to get along than it is to be difficult. So why would you be difficult? Now, if there are things that you have issues with, hopefully you've established the relationships with the people you have them with that you can have a conversation. And if you have that, you got it. You're still not going to get your way every time, or maybe even most of the time. But why not do it that way? So you guys are young. You're listening to me, and you're thinking, wow, this guy knows what he's no, no you're not thinking that, are you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, can I ask you guys a question? Go for it. Uh, I, I know that you both are doing uh, women's games at, at D1 schools. I assume, even though you like these jobs, you've probably tried to advance your careers. How difficult is it now? It's been a long time since I tried to get a job. I don't even know the process anymore. It was difficult in my time, but I feel like there were, uh, even though there's internet and streaming and all of these other things, which provide more opportunities, there's not the local stations doing games that there once were. I don't know if the opportunities are the same and B, how hard is it to move up? Well, for me, it's, it's hard, you know, for this job, I'm doing Florida women's basketball here at the Gators, a lot of Olympic sports fill in on the men's side. There was a hundred plus people that applied for this job. I mean, it was cutthroat to get this job. Because it is a good job. It's a stepping stone job. But Roger can tell you, it is any of these jobs, these division one jobs that come open, you're talking 200, 250 applicants, all that most that are pretty qualified for these positions. So like you said, how do you stand out? Yeah. You know, it's like how because there's a lot of guys that can do these jobs. Sure. How in the world am I going to I can do the play by play, but what else am I giving this place that that they're going to take a shot on me. And I, it, it seems like it's almost impossible at this point, Mark, to to move up. But I don't know if Roger feels the same way. Yeah, I do. And for the longest time, you know, mostly my focus was baseball because I was in minor league baseball for so long. Eight years as the broadcaster for the Marlins double A team in Jacksonville. And that was always my focus. Uh, and then trying to break into baseball when, you know, the Marlins broadcasters on TV, radio just weren't changing pregame. Nothing was changing. That's when I started to look more towards the college opportunities I had and everything kind of changed at Alabama. In my last couple of years, I was in Jacksonville and made it to where they gave me a full time job. And uh, that's the kind of the 
direction I've started to go in a little more is towards college sports or television. But yeah, in baseball, it felt that way too. Similar to applying to be, you know, the voice of a D1 program. There's so many, there are 200, 300 people that are applying. How do you stand out? A lot of times it's the people that are on the home track that have worked for the uh, individual stations that move ahead faster, even if they haven't called minor league games or things like that. So I think it is uh, definitely cutthroat. There are so many people that want to do this. And this is a show designed for the people who are taking their very first steps on this journey, but also designed for Kyle and I to learn more from broadcasters like you. And that way we can help uh, sharpen our skills and hopefully land some of these bigger opportunities down the road. And, and that's why, you know, Mark, it's just grateful to have these jobs, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, because to be a yeah, in Alabama, yeah, we, we want to take that next step. We, we want to be calling the big games and sold out arenas, but sure. you know, we're doing TV games and radio games and full-time gigs for college athletics. And you just gotta, you gotta be grateful for what you have. And, you know, uh, I, if, I, if I were going to offer you guys and then guys of your ilk, younger guys who are, are trying to elevate through the ranks uh, and it's general, not specific because different guys have different circumstances, but persistence, keep at it. Don't get discouraged. And if you do, Try not to let it go on for more than a day. Keep working to get better. Keep establishing contacts uh, because what you're going to find as your personal, I don't know what you guys are in terms of your personal lives, but as you start to get older and get families, it becomes harder to move up for the reasons you've mentioned. Plus now I've got a wife and a child. I can't afford to take this job making X number of dollars. Um, So be aware of circumstances develop multiple skills. It sounds like you both are right now. There are skills now that weren't around in my time, you know, uh, with the, the editing of internet stuff and you guys, this podcast is genius by the way, because it allows you to get exposure. It allows you to meet people and establish contacts. Um, uh, it's, it's very good. Uh, I've seen a lot of your podcasts and they're well done. Uh, which is one of the reasons I was glad to come on and I appreciate you asking Uh, but persistence do not give up you don't want to be this guy let's say you get to be even if you had success in another field let's say you had to give it up I this is as high as I can get I am frustrated but I have an opportunity doing this so now you're 50 or 52 and you like your job okay but it's in a different field not the one you had a passion for you don't want to be this guy who says you know what I wish I would have worked harder. I wish I would have stayed with it longer. If you do have to get out for whatever reason, make sure that you left everything on the floor, everything. Then you might, I wish I could have been the voice of the Houston Astros. I didn't get there. But you know what? I did everything I could and I feel good about the experience and I feel good about the way I approached it. So be persistent. Do not, as I said before, ever forget people are watching and listening that you don't even know about. So don't half-ass it. doesn't sound like you guys are doing that. But the, the number one thing, and I, I was lucky. I had all these great jobs when I was young, but I was still frustrated. Don't let, you're going to be frustrated. Do not let it get to you. Do not let it affect your work and do not let it affect where you want to go. That's all. Well, that was a great note to end on, Mark. Just thank you so much for your time and your insights. So this has been one of our best episodes we've ever recorded. So just thank you so much for everything you gave us today. Well, thanks uh, for the invitation. I admire you guys in terms of uh, you're obviously skilled and professional. 
I admire how you're going about your careers and I hope you'll stay in touch. If I can do anything to help you, then uh, you know how to find me. Thanks, Mark. All right. Our thanks to Mark Boyle. Thanks to all of you for watching this edition of Broadcaster Hour.